this was a major opportunity to reshape storage. When I joined, there were about 30 or 40 people, and we went to hundreds of people. We have an opportunity to build a company that has over a billion dollars in revenue in the next several years. It was this realization that led Nimble Storage to file for an IPO in December of 2013. This episode of the Hot Topics podcast is looking at how to time, execute, and structure an IPO. Having raised $168 million at a valuation of just under $1.5 billion, the CEO of Nimble Storage, Suresh Vasudhavan, is well-placed to talk us through his experiences and impart some advice on what to do when thinking of floating your company. So we are here live with the CEO of Nimble Storage, Suresh Vasudhavan. Suresh, thank you for being here. Thank you, Tom. Pleasure to be here. Great. So we'll get straight into it. So Nimble was founded in 2008. I think you took on the CRO in 2011, having sat on the board for 18 months prior to that. Right. What was the right time for you to become the CEO and, and, and what attracts you to the business? Well, as it turned out, there were a couple of factors. Um, first, it was three or four months after we had shipped our product. And so the initial CEO, who's currently our VP of engineering, he was one of our founders, had already determined that as we were shipping the product, it was time to scale the company. We were going to go look for a CEO. I was on the board initially looking at who we might want to bring on as the CEO along with my other board members, and my company had gotten acquired. So very quickly, this it was very, very clear to me even at the time that this was a major opportunity to reshape storage. And so for me, it was a very logical conclusion to step in as a CEO. And I mean, in the three years after that, before taking the company public, you must have experienced huge growth in terms of customers and, and as, a, as a company. How do you manage that kind of a period? Indeed, it was, a, it was a great time. We went from, when I joined, there were about 30 or 40 people, and we went to hundreds of people. So lots of employees that we had to bring on board. Customer base was growing very, very quickly. If I look back at what, what was really fundamental to driving and managing that hyper growth, I would say probably the most important factor was the uh, kind of people that we were hiring, people who were absolutely sort of... Uh, willing and eager to join a startup, grow a company. So it was a very entrepreneurial group of early employees, and that, I think, was fundamental. The second one, I think, was just honing in on the value proposition, honing in exactly on who we were going to compete against and how we were going to displace them. So really understanding who our customer was going to be, why we were going to win, and making sure we had that message down pat within the entire organization. Those were a couple of very key factors early on. And then so it came to early 2014, yeah. and, and you decided to take the business public. When is the right time to, to make that decision? You know, that's a really good question. Um, I'm not sure there's ever a perfect time. There's always pros and cons of going public. And I will say even leading up to that event, there were quite a few uh, intense debates on the board. Fundamentally, the, the debate we were having was, on the one hand, going public would mean that we would have a lot more visibility as a company. We would be, um, capital as it turned out was not such a big, raising capital was not such a big driver because private markets were sort of a place where we could have raised capital quite easily. So it was really about visibility. It was about getting market traction and being able to reach out to many more customers. Those were the pros of going public. The con was that we now would have to have sort of our finances known publicly. We'd have to have more um, visible financials, but also discipline in how we were managing the P&L how we were managing cash flows and so on. So I think for us, the decision was somewhat easier because even a year prior to going public, we had been operating with all of the public company 
sort of discipline in place, yeah. almost managing the company to quarterly report outs and so on. So it was not that hard for us to uh, engage in the discipline of being a public company, and we thought the uh, leverage and exposure would bring us a lot more uh, of a customer base. That was the, that was the principal decision. You spoke about the, the entrepreneurial nature of the hires you made in the, the real growth phase. Right. Was there a different type of, um, of animal that you had to bring into the business in preparation for the, the public listing? A- absolutely. I think the year prior to going public, um, I would say, was the most intense period of my uh, professional career. Yeah. And there are a few things that happened. We had a f- world-class general counsel. She had uh, had prior experience of taking a company public. She was brilliant at being the overall project manager of the entire process. But it's really working with law firms. It's working with our controller, financial controller, who sort of manages all of our P&L and everything, was also someone who had had experience of going public. So it was really good that the two of them had done that before. But it's getting all of your books in order, getting all of your process in place with the law firm. Um, and then we met with an enormous number of investors to make sure that our message on what the company was doing would resonate with them, make sure that they understood what our future potential was and that they'd be interested in investing in us. So it's really a lot of legwork. And I would say without having brought on some of the people we did, it would not have been a smooth process. It's a combination of both people interested in taking a company public, joining a pre-public company, and therefore had the necessary experience, but also people with lots of drive. And I think you guys carried out an IPO roadshow. Right. Can you just explain what exactly that is and its importance in, in the process? Sure. Um, so the actual roadshow itself, the formal roadshow, takes place for a period of about a f- couple of weeks prior to the IPO event. And prior to that two-week period, perhaps maybe two and a half months ago, we did what's called a non-deal roadshow as well. So the first non-deal roadshow, we met with about 10 to 15 really large investors mm where we were able to concentrate on explaining what the underlying technology platform was all about, how that manifested itself and translated into customer wins, and to make sure that we could gauge their appetite for investing in a company like ours. Then the actual roadshow, that's a period of about 14 days, roughly 10 of those are uh, in investor meetings. And we ended up meeting somewhere between 8 to 10 investors uh, a day, for about 10 days on end. So you're meeting somewhere around 80 to 100 investors in the space of about 10, 12 days. And the entire purpose is really about an hour with each, sometimes half an hour. You're telling the entire story of who we are, why we started, what we believe the opportunity is, why we can take on massive giants like EMC and NetApp and still win, and why we translate into an interesting investment for, for the investor. Right. And so in that one hour, you're trying to get them excited about becoming a shareholder in the future public company. Fun process. So is there, is there a, a chance that you could um, make the decision not to go public if, for example, that roadshow doesn't go to plan? There are instances where that might happen. I will say even leading up to the roadshow, you should have tested the appetite of investors well enough. You should have a business model that bankers and lawyers and others are telling you um, will either work or not work. So it's extremely rare that you have to go to the roadshow and then discover that you don't have a saleable uh, product, if you will, in the company. That's unusual. That would be almost, to me, a sign of we didn't do all the right things leading up to the roadshow. And we've seen companies go public and get their pricing wrong of the IPO. Right. How do you 
make that decision as to what that is, you know, this is an interesting, this is one of the places where we lean quite heavily on our banking team that was yeah. advising us. And so the way that it works, um, based on past precedents, you get very quickly to a range in terms of valuation prior to the roadshow. During the roadshow, you have a really good sense for how much demand there is within the investor community. And the day prior to the IPO, you get to change your price within a certain bound one more time. And I think, so, um, and we did change our price. We raised our price a couple of times during the course of once prior to the roadshow. During the roadshow, we again raised it uh, one more time. And that's really where some degree of discipline comes in. If you try to price aggressively and price high, you tend to uh, raise more capital. But what you also run the risk of doing is disappointing investors that come in because they've come in at a very high price. If you price too low, you have an irrationally high increase right after. And, uh, and, and so you may have left some money on the table. So it's finding the right balance between leaving money on the table and not pricing for too much. And I'm not sure there's any perfect answer other than you apply judgment on the day based on all the advice you have and hope you get it right when you look at it the next day. <laughs> And now, I suppose, almost 18 months on after the, Indeed. the flotation, are you comfortable with your decision? Very much so. I think all of the things we were looking for, which is much broader visibility, um, much more of a platform for messaging who we are as a company, declaring to customers who often wonder if you're around to be acquired or if you have an intention to stay as an independent company for a long term, uh, and we wanted to answer that through the IPO. So all of those are very much in place. We've, uh, if I look back on the last year alone, we've more than doubled our customer base. Could that have happened without us being public? Possibly. I'm certain that the process of going public has helped us. Mm. There's something else that I think is really important for a Silicon Valley startup, or any startup for that matter, right? As a startup, when you take private capital, the only thing you're focused on early on is driving top-line growth and building out your company, right? So growth trumps everything, and you're burning a lot of cash. When you go public, you're signing up for one more really important step in the uh, life of any company, which is not just growing the top line, but demonstrating discipline in managing the bottom line. And that's a hard process. It's easier to burn money and drive growth. It's much harder to say I'm driving top line growth, but I'm also showing operating improvements in my, in my P&L. And yeah. that for us over the last four or five quarters has been a really important journey, and we feel really good about how that's evolving. Great. And there's, there's a suggestion, particularly here in Europe, that entrepreneurs in tech maybe start to sell their businesses slightly too early. Right. Rather than trying to really build a, a, a big company. What's your message to those entrepreneurs to maybe resist the, the temptation of, of being acquired? You know, I'll start by saying I wouldn't presume to judge whether selling is right or building a company is right, right? It is ultimately a call that the entrepreneur has to make. But the one thing about getting the timing right, even if you desire to sell the company, there's, there's a couple of things I would say. The first one is you have to have very honest, a very honest assessment of how much runway is there in the underlying technology platform you've built. We were, and we may be wrong someday looking back, but what we were convinced about is that it's not just rhetoric when we say we have an opportunity to build a company that has over a billion dollars in revenue in the next several years, can take on EMC and NetApp. You have to have real conviction and proof points that customer win rates, that when you go up against the large companies, you're able to demonstrate why and you're winning. So mm. first thing is have conviction in how much your company can be worth, how big can you build it. Second, I think, is about timing the momentum right. When you see accelerating momentum in your business, then 
wait for that momentum to translate into top line growth, into better fundamentals. The temptation is that somebody comes in with an attractive valuation, but if, if, it's, if it's because there's true underlying momentum in your business, then you know you're going to get a better valuation sometime later on. So I think it's, it's just being honest and saying, what's the opportunity? And is my business on a positive momentum or am I starting to stall out? When you start to stall out is when you want to be honest and say, now is the time to capitalize on an acquisition opportunity. On the other hand, if you think you have a long runway, then, then just stay put. Yeah, absolutely. You've been listening to the Hot Topics podcast. For more content, including live events and videos, visit hottopics.ht.